Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to John, the CTO and co-founder at Kentaba, and we discuss the innovation they are bringing to modern incident response management, the history of incident response going all the way back to the airline industry, and the most effective thing you can do when things start going sideways. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. What's going on? Dude, living the good life. How are you? <laughs> Doing all right. Yeah, 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 same deal. Where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm out here in New York. Uh, we've got an office is, is actually right across the river here in Long Island City, but I uh, live over in Manhattan. Is it back to being a little busier or is it still like zombie town out there? No, it's been uh, it's been better for a while now. I think the the city was hit so hard in the at the beginning of all of this that uh, that I feel like everyone just has been taking more and more precautions and and spending time outside and and kind of almost getting used to it from a from a new normal standpoint. And then the uh, the vaccine rollout is in overdrive, so we just just opened up to thirty plus uh, yesterday. Um, and I actually just got mine yesterday. So, so fingers crossed, I don't have any side effects during this interview, but, but yeah, but I think, I think we're up to like 80% of the city vaccinated or something at this point. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. If we did have uh, side effects during this interview, that would make it go so viral. It would be fantastic. <laughs> so feel free to have a seizure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Might be great for you. doesn't sound so good for me. <laughs> Uh, for us, we're gonna help get some get the word out about Kentaba. Am I saying that right? By the way, that's right. Yep, Kentaba. All right. So I'm saying Kentaba, right? What is that? Like, what's the name mean? So Kentaba's name is sort of born from a Japanese art form called kintsugi, uh, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's it's the art of taking broken pottery and reassembling it using golden inlay. And the outcome of that is that your your repaired version of the artwork is actually more valuable uh, than the original. Um, and I think it's just this fantastic metaphor towards the uh, the efforts that's, that are going on in the resiliency space, right? Which is which is how do we look at companies and ourselves, right, as stronger for our scars, as opposed to you know how do we uh, you know how how do we hide them and try to make them invisible. And the uh, you know I just think it, it maps really nicely. So so Kintaba really comes from the continuous effort, right, of practicing kintsugi on yourself as an organization and as a team. I love it, and it has to deal like it's perfectly tied because you do incident management, incident response. Explain what that is. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're an incident management platform, uh, which entails incident response, right? And uh, there's been a really fascinating uh, progression in, in the tech industry over the last maybe ten years. Right where we've 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 started to move from what was historically just alert management, right? In terms of how do we respond to server 105 going down and paging Phil who's asleep who wakes up and turns it off and moves on to to how are we managing you know major black swan events that are beyond kind of the predictable within our organization. And so this is this is captured in a bunch of different terms, right? Modern incident management is one of the ones, but but incident management platforms as as we've built it inside of Kintaba is really based around how do you go and implement those best practices and processes inside of your company of any size that historically have been really effectively practiced by, you know, Facebook and Google and Netflix and are only now starting to really kind of propagate out of those organizations and be formalized practices in other companies. 
Have you come across the book Principles? Mm-hmm. Ray Dalio. So he talks about believability, right? Like people being believe. Why are you believable on this topic? So we've got a lot of history in this space. Uh, so I, I've been a startup founder, kind of operating under the fire <laughs> since uh, 2011. Uh, had a, had another company back then doing high speed data transport uh, that Facebook acquired uh, back in 2012 is how we ended up there. Um, spent you know 2012 to 2017 at Facebook uh, building tools as that company scaled. You know, really, really went through hyper growth internally as well as externally. I think we were we were four thousand people uh, when when Zach and I joined, and then by the time I was gone, I think we were well over twenty thousand. So constant fires, and we built all of the tools inside of that company, everything from recruiting, you know, into into some of the task management updates that happened to knowledge management, uh, to communication, and and ultimately even workplace, which was Facebook's enterprise offering, uh, was something that I ultimately owned. So so I sort of live my whole life, my professional life at least, like under these fires of rapidly growing organizations at small engineering teams that are managing unusually large user bases. And so I've got a lot of experience there. Zach does as well, primarily from the security standpoint. So he worked really deeply in the security team at Facebook and then ultimately uh, managed mobile application security at Uber. So another sort of hyperscale world of everything on fire <laughs> as you're growing really quickly. And then Cole as well also, also did a lot of internal uh, tooling work at that company. Uh, and, and, and then you know, with within different teams sort of that were just dealing with these outages and fires. And I think I think these are the companies that were really at the forefront at the time, like 2011, 2012, were really Facebook, Google, Netflix practicing these types of uh, of of sort of blameless modern incident management that has has really sort of taken the rest of the industry uh, a little bit more by storm over the last few years. So we've just got a lot of history. I think I think it's a short history in the tech world for like major modern incident management, um, despite the fact that it's got about an 80-year history outside of tech. What company was acquired by Facebook? What was that about? Uh, so it's a company you've probably never heard of. Uh, it's, it's, its formal name was Caffeinated Mind. Um, and originally we were doing, you know, what I'd call kind of airdrop before airdrop. So we were, we were doing peer to peer transfer in the browser before that was a common thing. Uh, we were actually using Adobe technology, RTMFP technology. Uh, and we were at the time moving over towards enterprise, uh, high speed transport, mostly for the media industry. Um, and that company lasted 18 months before, before the acquisition. So, so very rapid arc through Y Combinator and, uh, you know, sort of bootstrapped and shoestring budgets all of a sudden being pulled into a, uh, what I'd call a much larger rocket ship. Did they buy you for the tech solving the specific problem they had, or did they just like the people? Why did they buy you? Uh, so uh, they mostly bought us for the people. Um, Facebook was really building all of its own tooling out and was trying to think more about how can it build product-oriented tooling internally. So it had an existing team uh, inside. I think it was called X Tools at the time. Um, and it was sort of transitioning from that into a, a newer name, kind of information tools. Um, and within that team, our, our goal was really, can we build organizations out of our tools, right? So we would build like a recruiting tool and build then a people tools organization inside of that. We'd build a chat and collaboration tool and then build the workplace team inside of that. So it was a really kind of unique approach to building tools within the organization where we really got to maintain that feeling of being founders throughout our time there. It didn't feel like being sucked into another team. It felt like just being a, given a much larger budget to execute uh, tools. And I think we had a unique perspective just from building enterprise tools at a time when they weren't particularly sexy and uh, and just having a lot of passion for that space. Dude, workplace, everybody knows workplace now. Face, Facebook like really pushed that hard and you got to be responsible for that? Yeah, so, so that was originally a, a two-person project uh, based out in Menlo Park. Um, and it was, it was originally really deep inside of, of the Facebook product it was part of the um, 
uh, the group's uh, product originally. And then we uh, we spun it out and uh, started a team out in London uh, that we grew really quickly. Uh, Lars Rasmussen, uh, the creator of Google Maps, was actually the um, uh, engineering lead on that project in the early days. And and yeah, it was just sort of a, a fascinating um, you know founder like stab into the enterprise space for a traditionally consumer company. Um, it's now quite large. Uh, I don't I don't know the numbers at this point, but but by the time I left and, and came back to the U.S. from from London, it was growing pretty rapidly. And so, at what point were you were you thinking I need to go start Kintaba? Uh, so, uh, you know, we we really always felt like founders at Facebook. I think I said before, and and I don't think we ever really dropped that feeling. And so, you know, once once I kind of finished getting workplace up and off the ground and, and had returned to the U.S., uh, I was living in New York um, and working on a new team out here, and uh, I just felt right. Um, I was talking to Zach. I remember uh, one night on on um, Messenger. And just saying, you know, I think I think maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to go and do something new. Uh, we met Cole over this period, who's the third co-founder in Kintaba, uh, and he was also itching for something new to do. And uh, you know, it just felt like the right timing. It felt like a good time to go and build tools again, and it felt like a good time to go and kind of attack a new user base, um, you know, outside of of the Facebook family that we'd gotten to know really well. And so, how did you do your research for what exactly what product you would build, where your market is? How did you? do the market validation market pressure test so we're pretty practical people um you know we went out and just hung out with all of our friends who had left facebook and gone to other uh, major value organizations like stripe and pinterest and uh you know very good security etc and and just walked tools with them really that 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 they were familiar with you know from their time working at major tech companies like like the facebooks and googles of the world you know and so well, what do you miss you know what can't you get off the shelf anymore and and a tool that kept coming up um, was a tool inside of Facebook uh, that was called Sev Manager, which was responsible separately from the alert management system for dealing with these sort of major black swan events, right? Like the site is down, uh, things are going horribly wrong, things are falling over, domino effect. We've got a sandstorm that just took out an entire data center, right? And it turned out that companies really at any scale, you know, we talked to friends who were starting their own companies and were at like eight or nine people. Everyone is dealing with these fires day to day, these sort of unexpected black swan major outages that require people to respond to them. And you you need a tool at that point and you need a process for how are you going to deal with the unexpected. And you know, it just kept coming up over and over and over again until the point where we said, well, we should just build this. Like we should really go and build this tool. Because our expectation coming into it, right, was that certainly there's already something off the shelf that does this, right? Like surely people are solving this problem with PagerDuty or they're solving this problem with an Atlassian project or product. And it just didn't turn out to be true. Uh, you know, we weren't finding that the way that those tools were presented was approaching the incident really from that first class citizen standpoint where you're really looking at it incident down and you're looking at it from you know sort of symptom and amorphous initial report and sort of distilling downwards right into solution and then reflection for for knowledge gathering inside the organization so there just didn't seem to be a tool out there for it that we could find and whenever that's the case as a, as a tools builder that's kind of the best moment to go and say okay great let's let's go build this for ourselves and then you put it in the hands of your friends and let them try it out and give you feedback or? Yeah, yeah. So, so we had a lot of uh, early beta testers uh, in the product. Um, you know, we were, we were very iterative builders. So we started with something that was as simple as a dashboard, right? What does it mean to have a different dashboard inside of your company that makes public all of these major outages, which is, which is a 
big difference, right, between most internal IT and SRE tooling, where these dashboards are available to the IT SRE and maybe some of the eng team, right? In major incident management, you need those dashboards available to everyone in the company because the definition of these things are that they're affecting everyone, right? They're company critical. So we really started there. We started just with the idea of how do you get this dashboard up? And then we propagated forward from that to, great, so now where do you collaborate to solve these problems, right? Is that happening in Slack? Is that happening inside of Kintaba? You know, what does that incident command center look like where your primary job is organizing the people who are responding to this major incident, you know, more than it is, uh, you know, kicking off scripts or otherwise, you're really working with humans and managing context and what do they know and how are we progressing and are we getting closer and closer to closure? Uh, and then finally, it ended up being uh, the postmortem piece, which is how do you go and record the knowledge from this major incident and, and what really happened? How do you take the responders and give them a platform on top of which to propagate out information about how do we make sure this never happens again? And how do we spread that throughout the company? So it's really those three things that we kind of grew during the initial beta testing phase. Um, and then we launched it uh, back in February of last year. So it's been just about a year that it's been live. And you're growing, you've got customers. How's that going? Yeah, it's going really well. Um, you know, our, our, our initial approach to this was supposed to be go find one or two, you know, companies that were willing to work with us, you know, once we were, once we were live and, uh, you know, sort of maybe give them the product for free, give them huge discounts, right. Iterate quietly for a couple of years and then, and then launch it again. And instead what happened is, is we had this, this sort of flood of inbound, uh, uh, companies wanting to try and use the product straight out of the gate. And uh, they were companies of, of, of pretty varied type, right? We have a uh, you know, small 30, 40 person companies like Vercel, which is called Zeit at the time, which are very developer driven organizations. And then we had like uh, much later stage, you know, kind of unicorn organizations like Gusto, right? Which is like 1300 plus people. I love uh, Gusto. Using the product. I use Gusto. I got to talk to their founder. I love them. Great company. They're fantastic. Best best thing about them is when when you go visit, if it's not the pandemic, you get free socks because they're a, they're a shoe free office. Nice. So it's, it's one of the best pieces of swag I think you can get when visiting an office. I'm sending an email after this podcast. I want some gusto socks. I love socks. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we're we're off topic. Kintaba is way cooler. I, I keep forgetting the word. The what is it with the what's the Japanese word? Oh, kintsugi. Kintsugi. But I've heard that story, right? It's a great leadership one. I hear a lot. The other day I was camping and I happened to um, hit an electrical box and damage my fender. And I tried to think to myself, maybe I just like fix it with some gold and like have a good story. And then I was like, no, I got to get it replaced because it just looks bad. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, there's this really interesting cultural change that's happening here, right? Which is there's there's a desire even from customers i think but really just the the community of of technical workers to to have more visibility into the outages and and failures of other companies right and i think i think we can see it on on places like hacker news when there's an outage now with like cloudflare the the first thing people talk about is wanting to read the postmortem right they want to see what really happened they want to know why it went down because we're all sharing uh infrastructure these days right if if cloudflare went down could be something on AWS that I'm using as a founder, as a developer, or otherwise. And so I immediately want to know, like, what happened? How did it happen? How did it affect me? And in a lot of ways, it sometimes eclipses the outage itself. It's sometimes, right, the, the reasoning behind the outage is more interesting. Um, I think that's a that's a really exciting change that's happening in the industry, right? From, from oh, this company's terrible because they went down to, you know, we, we generally think there's probably good people working there. It'd be great to understand, like, why? They went down so it doesn't happen 
for us. I think that's that's one of the sort of core tenets of modern incident management that that we have to embrace, um, and that is is just starting to be embraced. I think it's one of the reasons that that products like Kentaba are becoming more popular. Are people sharing? Like your customers, this is an internal incident management tool. Typically, are people sharing these things publicly, like on a status page? Yeah, so we're working towards that. Um, I mean, if you think about like where this goes, you sort of have an order of operations, right? The first one is get companies to you know adopt healthy incident management practices, and then the natural follow-on to that becomes help them be more public about their incidents. You know, we 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 sort of had a, a run of of startups like Status Page. .io that helped it, us at least expose the basic incident itself. Um, but I still think we're in the early stages of the, the piece after that, which is not just that the incident is happening, it's pretty hard to hide that, but the actual like inner workings of why did it happen and how did it happen, right? Like what is, what is the, um, the technology equivalent, right, of the NTSB report for an airplane crash? And, uh, and I think one of the things we do really well in, in, in tech is we take you know, these things that in the rest of industry look like huge binders, right? And like really complex processes. And we sort of boil them down and distill them into their atomic parts. And I think that's that's really what, what modern incident management, what Kentaba is trying to do. It's trying to take what outside of tech is a pretty complex process of, of incident response management, you know, reflection and turn it into something that anyone can do that you or I or a five-person team doesn't feel like is strange to go and do, which is write a postmortem. Even if you're a six-person team, go write a postmortem. Even if it's two sentences, you're going to get value out of it internally. I think like that progression is pretty exciting. You mentioned earlier that it goes way back like 80 years do you know the history of the like? Do you know about all of that? Are you an expert in the incident response? History? I, don't, I don't know if I'm a, I'm a perfect expert, but I've I've certainly read the experts. Right? There's there's folks out there like Sidney Decker who write a lot about about especially in the airline industry, the progression right from the old world, which was we just blame people. Right? Every time something goes wrong, we say, well. Ed's an idiot. Fire him. That'll fix the problem. And we progressed forward from that. And the the airline industry really led this, right? Because they were able to to focus on an outcome that was worth spending a lot of time on, right? Which is which is how do you keep people alive? Because you want to avoid these plane crashes. Um, and they made a couple of of really important learnings kind of early on. And 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 they kind of break those down into like three, right? Like one is no matter what you do, you're going to have major incidents. So you need to have some sort of process in place for it, right? You can't just go and say that was a mistake from person number one or person number two. We have to be prepared for it. We're not going to hire perfection and we're not going to have perfect systems. You know, number two is, is that the people who are involved in these like major black swan events are, are, are sort of victims of the context and systems inside of which they're operating more than they are the cause of the situation itself. Um, and then the third is that those people are also the most important account holders of context to help everyone else avoid that situation ever happening again. And these were these were sort of hard-fought learnings, right? It's it's actually against human nature. The very natural thing for us to do when things go wrong, because as outsiders, we have 2020 visibility back into them, is to say, well, you should have known X and you didn't know X. And so you're fired and the next person will know X. And the reality is X happened because the system we put in place as, as, as business owners put the person in the situation for that problem to occur. So, so airlines had to capture this, right? In terms of like, how do we capture more often and earlier the smaller incidents such that we avoid the big ones? And so you actually want, it leads you to a realization that you actually want more incidents as an organization to avoid the big ones 
right? When you have like SEV levels, you have a SEV one, right? Which is like major catastrophic outage, right? You have SEV two, which is sort of like not quite catastrophic, but major outage. And you have SEV three, which is we caught this early enough and people probably didn't notice, right? And it turns out what you really want within an organization is to maximize your SEV twos and SEV threes such that your SEV ones decrease. And if you put that in the context of like an airline industry, it makes a lot of sense, right? You want to maximize your reports of problems on my dashboard, problems with my stick, problems during the flight to avoid airplane went into the ground. And I think that that's like kind of the, the learning that was able to come out of that industry out of necessity. And it really propagated from there outwards and sort of worked its way through additional kind of human factors knowledge until we got to this point today, which is we have to absorb that into every company, not just you know life critical organizations. Um, I think the story is Google got most of its incident response processes from the uh, Mountain View Fire Department, right? Is like where they actually absorbed that, and they got that probably from uh, FEMA style training, right? And they got that from the DoD, and the DoD learned a lot of that from the NTSB. And it's it's really fascinating when you take this stuff backwards academically because we're the recipients of all that learning much more than we are the the inventors. Dude, that's a lot to think about. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool history, um, and I think it's uh you know it, it, it companies like uh, like Stripe. I think their internal tool for this is is called the Big Red Button, um, and they call it that because <laughs> it's based off of the factory floor, right? Which is the idea that if something's going wrong, anyone can hit that big red button. And and one of the big tenets of of modern incident management and of of Kintaba uh, is this idea that anyone within the organization should be able to go and declare an incident. Because we trust our people to be able to go do that, it's not a it's not a higher up decision. It's not something that you go and clear. It's a big red button sitting on the factory floor that if you feel like needs to be pushed, you should go and push that button. Push the button, for sure. That that should you can do a marketing campaign around that. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically you're just saying use the product. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think we we really get this benefit now of looking back, and it seems almost obvious. When you talk about it this way, right? It's like, of course, anyone should be able to file an incident. But you know, we we talk to a lot of companies that are just getting into this space, and uh, and I think culturally they they're they're working towards that. But you're really starting with a world where this lives inside of one part of the organization, right? Like maybe you have an SRE team and they're responsible for filing incidents, right? But really, the practice you want is you want anyone in the product organization, uh, anyone in the end organization. Um, really, you probably want folks in your sales organization and otherwise to be able to file these incidents. And what's important is that your management system does a good job of helping you categorize and control who gets impacted, contacted, and 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 brought in as your response team. And that's that's what a tool starts to do, right? So so when you think about where does Kintaba fall in this like massive of of uh, you know learnings from the last 80 years, it's really just about putting into practice all of these learnings. How do we make that dashboard accessible to everyone? How do we do a good job of finding the right people who need to respond? How do we bucket these things effectively? Uh, how do we propagate the information out to the rest of the company as the incident's progressing? You know, all of those are sort of the practical implications of like, what should a tool do to give your company the benefit of, of this you know, almost century of learning? And so how are, how are you going to market? Are you doing like can are you letting people try it free? Are you doing B two B sales teams? So, so we're one of the only products out there right now um, in this space, especially in the startup space, that is fully self service accessible. Any any company of any size can come in, sign up on the site. You don't have to talk to our sales guys. Uh, if you want to, you can, but you don't have to. You can click a button, and we're even free if you're small. So, if you're a five person team, the the product doesn't cost anything. So, if you're really small and you're just getting an incident response and management, um, there's no cost. Uh, associated with it. 
and we'll continue to do that forever. I mean, that's 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 a requirement, I think, for getting a product like this off the ground is understand how to how to help accessibility into it to all organizations. Because if you look at other competitors in the space who, who, whose names I won't list here, you know, you'll you'll always be faced with the contact our sales team button and you'll go through a multi-month effort of conversations and talking and 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 then eventually being sold this impossibly expensive product that you would only adopt if you were an organization, you know, with over a million ARR. And that's that's just that's just silly. Yeah, especially because it's something that's that widely applicable. Everybody that has a product running in production has to deal with incident response. That's right. That's right. It's it's every single company. I mean, it's every company is on fire. And you don't you don't even have to be a technology company, right? Like your every sales team is on fire. Every uh, every every uh, uh, customer success support team is on fire, right? Incidents, as long as they're categorized down to the organization inside of them, your response practices aren't actually that different between your engineering team, uh, you know, and a non-engineering team. Um, you can have a PR incident and your process is still the same. It's declaration, it's bringing that team together, it's uh, tracking the progress, and then it's it's writing up your reflection in your postmortem and distributing it to the relevant people. Like that's the same thing if you're a PR team as it is if you're an engineering team. Yeah, I would say that the engineering teams are more used to this though. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you look at our customers, certainly, if you look at like, you know, where, 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 where does this get, where does this land easiest? You know, like who's the part of, of, of technology organizations that are adopting modern incident management? Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's the engineering organizations. Um, and that's, that's really thanks to the propagation of it out of the bigger companies, right? People are leaving companies like Facebook and Google and they're joining other startups and they're joining smaller companies and they're expecting these tools to be there when they show up. That's true. That's true. Now I'm curious to know. So you have this idea, you do the beta, you put it out there, you get some people, you're in a really unique position because your users are, how do I say this? They're at the highest stress point possible. So typically, you know, you build a leadership software, people aren't extremely stressed out when using the product, right? So you've got a situation here where people are, are their emotions are riding high things aren't good, money's being lost, and they're having to use your software. What is something that you learned that was maybe like counterintuitive about that experience? So I think when we when we first started building Kintava out, uh, we, we had a very sort of responsive tools mindset to the product, which was, you know, this is really all about getting out of your way as much as possible. Right, um, and we we still do actually advertise a lot towards that. Right, like take over the management side of, of incident management. But but that was really the core focus of the of the user experience was how does the product back off and let you interact with the command center, interact with Slack, etc. And and some of the unexpected feedback we got back from from early customers was that they they actually wanted the product to be a little bit more human um, when they were interacting with it because they were under this higher level of stress. Uh, you know, we we got some feedback from one customer that whenever they were interacting with the Kintava bot inside of Slack, they were actually talking to it. They're actually responding, you know, and 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 adding the bot and like putting emojis on the bot because that was the non-human in the room that they could direct right their emotions to during these high stress moments. And so, so the learning for us there really was, you know, the that Kintava has to not only be the tool. Your incident response process can't just be the tool. It also has to be a bit of a participant in the response process from a almost emotional leadership standpoint, right? The attitude 
that your tool takes on is the attitude that the response team will start to absorb. So when it's high stress, like you described, when, you, when you're dealing with losing money, when you're dealing with servers being down, you've got to walk that line just perfectly in terms of how the tool speaks whenever it comes in and, and makes a comment. And you can't be flippant, but you have to be positive. And that's a, that's a tough line to walk. And so I think the learning there for us has really been, you know, you're, you're creating, when you create an incident response tool, you're actually creating one of the responders and it's, a, and you get an opportunity there to shape, you know, how everyone else acts because they're expecting the tool to be the best practice. And so you need to be at the end of the day, you're almost the, the incident response leader when you're the tool, just like you would be if you, if you had a, you know, a, a, an incident commander inside of the company that was trying to propagate this culture. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I think a lot of the time when I think about tooling in the past, you know, we really try to think about that tooling is invisible. And, uh, and I think in this case, because it's so human, because it's so emotionally charged, there's, there's much more opportunity for, for the product to help impact culture from an emotional and sort of voice standpoint, as well as there is from a core functionality standpoint. Do you know that there are consultants that go run these mock explosions essentially like they'll get everybody into a conference room and say okay our server went down they'll do run an incident response exercise this is happening a lot do you know about this yeah i, I think a lot of that's built out of kind of the 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 older world almost of disaster recovery right where you would you would sort of run these these types of drills um not to say that it's an outdated process but yeah i, I think that is something that's happening you know i i i think the challenge with with a lot of that is when you're building out those 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 processes and pulling a lot of people into a room and saying, okay, we're going to do it now and here, you sometimes end up localizing that information to the group who's able to attend. And what you really want to do is propagate out those practices in a tool. So, so there's sort of a saying, right? Which is, um, you know, if you want to implement a process, you should implement a tool. And I think I think that's that's kind of the evolution of that action is really the tool needs to be able to both teach you live what you should be doing from a process step-by-step -step standpoint, as well as it does need to be able to permit you to prepare. Uh, yeah, but I'm saying like, you should talk to these companies that are doing this across the United States and have them do it with your tool because they're not selling tools though. They just sell the consulting of that day exercise. So if you can connect with them, this is their entire business model and they're doing this every single day with companies all across the United States at least, then they could be using your tool especially since it's like you've got a free version and then you can get a bunch of customers and you've got people teaching on your tool. I, I will. I, I'm writing this down as you say. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. I think, I think it's a, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's, I think there's probably more opportunity for collaboration inside of this space across all of the, what you, what you might call the practitioners and the tools builders than than has really historically been done. You, you end up with a lot of sort of silos of practice which is okay. We're going to do this, you know, with with your consultant from from MegaCorp, right? ServiceNow or otherwise. That's going to explain how to do it. But then, like you said, I think there's there's a, a very large number of independent uh, consultancies and, and organizations out there practicing these things, and they're basically doing, um, you know, pen and paper uh, incident response and uh, and teaching that way. So yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, because people will do deal. They will use what they have until something better comes along. You know, and there is, I know a couple of them too. Like I can connect you. I'm going to ask around. Uh, we have this group called Elevate where all the tech leaders come together and there's about like 220 of us, but we split into small groups of like four and five people. Um, and we have like a guest speaker every week. And so I've gotten to know the different members of the group. And I know a couple people 
who, you know, they have smaller consultancies, maybe like 10, 20 people. But this incident response stuff is exercises that they run with the executive teams of, you know, companies. And so, you know, they're just, they're, they're teaching them how to do it. Like with their, like their new relic alerts go off or whatever. Okay, this is happening. And this is how we respond. But if, if you could just hand them this tool or just be like, hey, do you guys know Kentaba exists? And then how are you teaching people? Do you have resources on the website? Is it strictly embedded in the flow? Like if I want, like if I go sign up for Kentaba and I'm, I'm, let's say, let's put some context here. Let's say there's 20 people in my engineering department, right? And I'm like, this sounds like what we need. And so I go on there, I sign up. And then I need to learn how to like actually manage the incident. How does that happen for me? How do I learn that? So we we work pretty hard not to make you go through like a learning experience. You know, we don't we don't send you over to like a set of docs that you have to go read and, and kind of become culturally aligned to. You know, a, as it's built, the product is meant to feel like a series of steps that you go through naturally. So you'll sign up, you'll immediately get a couple of integrations you ought to do to go make it work best for your business naturally. You'd plug it into things like Slack if that's what you're using for communication. But really what we're trying to push you towards is get that first incident filed. And as soon as you start there, as soon as you click that incident button, everything else can be done live while the incident is happening. So the fields you need to fill out are predefined. We don't, we don't make you go through you know, and, and, and pre-configure every single field that needs to be done. We know the best practice. We know how much of a description needs to be put in. We know how much of a title. We know that you should just be able to go and create tags and get these things categorized quickly. And then once it's created, everything inside of the command center is designed to let you real-time go and start to build, even if you didn't understand or even if you didn't pre-configure the product. So you can start to define who your responders are, get them pulled in. We'll send emails out. We'll link them back. Uh, we broadcast incident announcements into Slack so people discover it. Sort of your process as you move forward can be driven both by you as a responder as well as by uh, we have an automation system that can go and do things like comments into the incident response channel to help people know what to do next. But really, we're only trying at the top level as a new user to get you to go through the flow at least once so you can feel that value. And that flow is really just declare the incident at all, which is a pretty big barrier for a lot of organizations. Just define it. Make sure people know it exists. Record and uh, uh, log the responders who are supposed to come in, get them involved, let them know what's happening and record that collaboration so it's not lost You know, six months later by the Slack channel that you delete. And then, and then once complete, stay on the original responders from a comm standpoint through email and otherwise to make sure that they actually go and write that postmortem and then auto-distribute it. So we're really, we're really putting you through an obvious feeling flow, but then taking on roles as a product to make sure that after you have one incident, two incident, three incidents, your process gets better and better over time. And, uh, and the people who are aware of the tool and operating inside of it um, use it. So we're, 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 you know, I hate to use the word viral, but the goal of the product is to be naturally viral. You shouldn't have to internally go and, and, and advocate other people to adopt, to adopt it. You know, incidents are sort of like, uh, like train crashes. Everyone wants to look at them. So you naturally get this attraction into the product of, of people inside the organization who care. And so you sort of naturally start to build up this group of individuals using the product and it spreads really nicely. So how do you teach your people what an incident is? Like if you open this, I get it. If you have the engineering team and, you, and maybe there's a common vernacular, you all understand what you classify on, on a scale of severity or however you're scaling it. But like, 
let's say you're opening this up to the entire company now and you've mm-hmm. got, you know, Jill and support and like, how, how do you train them on the big red button? So, so we default to a lot of simplicity when it comes to the parameters that you might put into an incident, uh, which helps a lot here. We really start with three sub-levels. And when you're creating an incident, we're descriptive of what those are, you know, what degree of impact defines each one. We're also not, uh, none, none of this information is permanent. So the whole, the whole idea behind an incident, right, is that it changes over time. So you can be wrong. You can actually create your incident. You can misfile it. You can put the wrong tag on it or otherwise. But the critical thing that we do is we always bring in an incident, we call it an IMOC, an incident manager on call. And that's generally, initially, it's the person who first signed up for Contaba, but it's defined as a rotation. And this person is brought into every incident within the organization. And they're there to sort of be the context holders and the orchestrator for how's this supposed to work. So if the random person from marketing comes in and joins the product six months in and and files their first incident, you're going to have an IMOC involved in that incident as well, who can help do things like recategorize, redefine, and, and move it forward. But these things are different per organization. We don't, we don't really intend to come in and say, here's exactly what a SEV123 is in your company, right? Like you'll figure that out as you continue to file and as you continue to create these things. And there's not even a really strong, perfect best practice of what is the line. We have, we have huge companies that file three to four incidents you know, a week, and we have tiny companies that file 10 to 20. And depending on how you're operating, that's okay. Uh, as long as your uh, your team is is responding effectively and going through the flow, thousands of internal factors affect whether or not you uh, have more or fewer incidents. But we'll generally push you towards lower barrier. We'll generally say the more incidents you file, the better, um, because the process should be lightweight enough that it's not a disruptive process. How do you get them to file their first incident when they're signing up? They usually aren't having an emergency. Yep. So this is this is this is the million dollar question, right? Into into how do you get adoption of uh, of, of these kinds of SaaS tools? You know, our goal kind of initially is to integrate with the other tools you're already familiar with, right? Get into Slack. Uh, we connect into Jira, etc. In ways that you will think of us next time there's a major incident. We also put you through a, uh, a sort of new user experience the first time you come in, where you get to practice creating an incident alone, so you can be a little bit more comfortable with what the tool is going to do for you. Uh, as you move forward. But it's really, you know, at that point inside of a company, it's really a, uh, a sort of trust question after you've adopted the product. Like, will I remember it? Like, will I, will I trust it to be better than just going and firing off a Slack channel on my own? And, uh, and that's, really, that's really just an effort around tool crafting, right? That's about keeping the, the product feeling uh, safe, easy to use, accessible in such a way that you feel comfortable going in there and filing um, and then deleting, you know, if it's the wrong, if you were just trying something out, you can go mark those incidents invalid and get rid of them. You're not, you're not trapped in sort of a permanent world of, of your test incidents. How do you get feedback from the customers? Are you just on calls with them all the time? Is there a feedback system? We've got a lot of Slack channels <laughs> uh, with, with, with a lot of our customers. Um, we, you know, we're, we're pretty early stage. We still rely on a lot of uh, manual outreach uh, discussion. We're, we're certainly analytics-driven in terms of what people are using inside of the product for, for what's working well. But being such a kind of cultural change for organizations to adopt, it's a lot of just, just direct conversations um, about you know, where are you finding a lot of value here versus you know, where is it getting in your way? And this is, this is sort of the primary thing we care about. Like, where does it feel like it's making your business better every day versus you know, where do you feel like it's just kind of an annoying additional tool that you've got to go reach out to? And I think in this sort of era we're in of, of, of a new SaaS product every week, 
right? You have that risk of just being another thing that you've got to go and open up and, and interact with. So we get, we get a lot of our information you know, from direct human contact, you know, a lot of outreach, a lot of phone calls, a lot of Slack conversations. Um, you know, we try to turn around feature requests faster than anyone else. Uh, and in doing that, we tend to get a lot of kind of immediate feedback on why are you doing this? Why would you want to change that? What is this giving to you that it might give to someone else? And so, yeah, so, so I, I believe pretty strongly in just kind of continually talking to users. I think that's sort of the standard here, you know, versus, versus just looking at, 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 necess- at, you know, globs of data and saying, well, we need to go and, and, and sort of virally pull more people into screen. Why? Uh, I think that's not really our job, right? Our job is to get out of your way. So, so we almost in a lot of ways want to see, you know, lower time spent, but, uh, but, but sort of higher sentiment. How do you, as, as a leader of this thing, how do you structure the time that you're going to spend with your customers? This is just, I'm personally curious. Do you put blocks on like Tuesday and Thursday for three hours? And you say, okay, in these time blocks, I'm just going to be, you know, going around, exploring, talking to customers, engaging mm-hmm. with them. Or do you set a certain number of meetings a week? Like, how do you guarantee in your schedule that you're spending time with customers? So, so a lot of it is, you know, inbound interrupt driven and just sort of being accepting of that. You know, you, you have to be willing to take feedback at the moments that it comes in. You can't often schedule it, especially if you're keeping open lines of communication uh, with your customers. So that's that's probably 80% of it, honestly, is 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 inbound feedback uh, that we're rapidly responsive to so that we can better understand the, the kind of high-level problem. That's less about blocking time and more being accepting of the fact that you're going to be interrupted and it's a valuable use of your time. In terms of blocked time, that's more where, where we try to schedule kind of deep conversations with customers. Um, and we don't we don't do those as often, right? Those those happen every you know month or two in terms of like let's get on a call with the you know leaders inside of the organization, the torch holders who are really pushing incident response and understand where the things we're doing are working um, and where they need to see more to be able to get the value out of the product. So it's a combination, but but honestly, I think the interrupt driven side of it is more important. I think I think being available at the moment of feedback is something that a lot of especially startups really struggle with. Because you're doing so many things, the natural thing to do is kind of to push it back and say, okay, we'll get, you know, we'll respond to these things later on. But if you if you kind of accept that priority as being one of the most important pieces of information you can gather, then it makes more sense to actually be willing to kind of close out as, as a leader the deep work that you're trying to engage with and context switch over into the opportunistic feedback. And I think, you know, Slack has sort of forced this on all of us, right? It's become like the new notification that pops up where there's an expectation of rapid response. But I actually think that that's really healthy, right? That lets us iterate a lot faster. If you if you rewind the clock ten years, you know, SaaS businesses really struggled to get consistent feedback from their user bases. They had to go and schedule these time blocks, and they had to convince you to get on a phone call, right? Or they had to get you into these big long email chains with like bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, or fill out this form or fill out this survey. And I think uh, I think we've progressed really nicely beyond that. I think the the you know, maybe it's the evolution of customer success, right? Is customer success isn't really about being an email address anymore. It's about being everywhere and being able to kind of accept that inbound information wherever it happens. No, I like that. And I haven't even gotten to explore Slack's new tools yet, but I saw an email a couple of weeks ago that I can now message other people that are outside of the organization. Have you played around with this at all yet? Yeah, we, we use that really heavily. Um, that keeps us connected, you know, especially to sort of the early you know, torch holders inside of these companies, the, the people who, who are, who are, you, you, you put your neck on the line, especially in a larger company, when you bring in 
a startup SaaS, right? You're saying this is going to be better than maybe our established relationships. And so those, those types of relationships, we keep open, you know, very closely personal one-to-one. Uh, and we, and we do use actually that Slack feature pretty heavily for it. Tell me how it works. So I've never used it. I just saw the email about it. I have Slack, you have Slack. Let's say I want to talk to you. What is that? How does that, how do I do it? How does it express itself? Can me and you be in a channel together in my Slack? Like, how does this work? Yeah, it's pretty similar to um, like shared channels. If you use those, there's sort of an outreach that that goes out. And I think in most cases I've seen it's been through email. There might be other channels you can use to do it. Um, And once that outreach is accepted, you basically get into a, a direct message experience where the company name is shown. I think because we tend to be working with people inside the engineering and IT organizations that there might be an approval step there that they're also following through on that that I don't see with shared channels. I know you have to go through like an approval step from whoever the Slack administrator is. Uh, but for for the direct messaging side of it, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's as present or if it's a different setting. It hasn't hasn't proven to be a huge barrier. Most of these actually elevate for us out of um, existing shared channels. So we'll tend to have like a many-to-many relationship that then kind of escalates or uh, or propagates out into one-to-one conversations. So tell me about your co-founders. Did you, did you meet them all while working at Facebook? What's your relationship like with them? Yeah, so uh, Zach and I have actually known each other since high school, back in back in Chapel Hill. Uh, we uh, we we went to school together and uh, and we're just you know hackers in the early days. Uh, we 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 did all of the fun stuff that you'd do back in the early 2000s, even late 90s, when you could still do things like red boxes and play with payphones and, <laughs> and kind of early stage har- hardware hacking. And he he went off and uh, went out to California, moved about halfway through high school and and uh, went to school out there. Um, and we really didn't reconnect for, um, you know, five or six years. I think he was working at Apple um, and I was working at Harvard at the time. And I'd, I'd reached out and said, look, I, I think I think we ought to go go do a company together. I think we ought to start a company. And I flew out there and, and slept on his couch for a little while. And we, we did our interviews with Y Combinator. And uh, Zach, just being the guy he is, just quit, quit his job at Apple you know, one day into uh, being accepted there. And this was, this was back when, when it was much harder you know, from a monetary standpoint to get a startup off the ground. We, uh, y Combinator gave you like $17,000, I think, at the time and told you good luck. And with that money, you went and rented an apartment in Mountain View. And uh, you slept and ate and lived in that apartment and worked in that apartment and did everything you could to get up off of the ground. So it was a big thing for him to leave, you know, an organization like Apple back then. Um, and he's just just always had the same sort of fire that I have in terms of let's just build things that people love and 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 let's put things out there and let's iterate aggressively and let's let's do that on our own and take those risks. Cole, we met later. We met Cole at uh, at Facebook, and uh, and Cole was sort of more of a of an up and coming just really effective, diligent, thoughtful architect uh, when it came to tooling from a standpoint of, of how do we build these things the right way, you know, in a world of sort of throw things against the wall and hope for the best. And really appreciated that. It, it had a pretty profound impact on the tools that he touched there. And, and, and he was actually a big part of the early building of a uh, workplace as well. He built some of the early underpinnings and, and technical architecture there. And so everyone, everyone just worked really well together. We're all friends. Uh, we hang out pre-pandemic at least, <laughs> you know, in person and, and now digitally. And I, I think that's important. I think, you know, in the early days of, of they, they probably still espouse this, right? But in Y Combinator, one of the biggest things they look for in founding teams is, you know, are you friends? Because it turns out that's really what keeps founders together more than anything else, right? Like product ideas change, efforts change, things work, things don't work. And it's really founders kind of falling out, falling out from each other that break companies the most often. 
And so it's really important to me, you know, to work with people who are my friends and people who who I get along with day to day, not just people who I, you know, think are going to technically execute most effectively, despite the fact that I think Zach and Cole do. I think that, you know, where I put on the hierarchy of needs, I think I put, you know, friendship and 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 capability there above everything else. So what else do you do in your personal life other than build this empire? I mean, uh, uh, pre-pandemic in, in the good old days, a lot of outdoor cycling. Uh, I live out here in New York and quickly learned the, uh, the routes up and out of the city. Uh, there's really some beautiful, beautiful cycling you can do out here um, up along uh, the Hudson River, uh, all the way up north to like Garrison and, and Cold Spring. It's just incredible. Actually bike in to and from work when it's not too cold here as well over and across the Queensboro Bridge. So I get to be a uh, a commuting warrior <laughs> as well out there, but that's, that's a good way to kind of just get, get things out. That's, that's sort of my big one. Otherwise I spend, you know, a lot of time with my, as much as I can with my family, I've got a, a three-year-old, um, actually who was, who was born one month after we, uh, we started this, this, this corporate entity that eventually became Cantaba. Uh, so I've, I felt like they've grown up next to each other. The company has grown up next to my son, which has been pretty fascinating. And I always, always had sort of the theory, right? You, you, if you're going to be a founder and you're going to have a kid, you need to figure it out from day one or else you're never going to be able to go and switch into it. So, so that's really it. It's, it's the company. It's, 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 a, it's some, uh, you know, some physical stuff when I can get it in, but, uh, you know, luckily with, with working with your friends, you, you get a lot of that social value from, from day-to-day work, uh, that you'd otherwise kind of have to go, you know, out to bars or otherwise to go and satisfy. My, uh, my daughter is almost four and I started this whole journey a month after she was born. So she was born in September. I started it like at the end of October and I was looking at my life and I was just like, here we go. I mean, all this big change is happening. It's about as scary as it could possibly get. And uh, I'm okay with that. If you're not, you probably shouldn't be founding a company. <laughs> I had this theory that there's there's the maximum amount of you know stress and, and pain that any any individual can feel. And if you're going to max it out anyway with a child, you might as well max it out with the startup as well. Turns out I was completely wrong about where that threshold is. I thought it was about <laughs> here. It turns out it's it's a lot higher up. But uh, but yeah, I think I think it's um, I think there's 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 a, there's a lot of us out there. There's a lot of you know founding founders who are also parents who are who are learning how to you know do both, how to raise companies and raise children. And I think we we rely you know on our partners a lot for that, uh, as well as we just rely on learning from each other. I actually, actually would prefer if there were more social groups for, for parents who are founders to, to go and kind of share strategies. Cause I think that's a lot of, uh, a lot of like emerging knowledge is With what do you do daycare. when you have a three-year-old? Yeah. Like you can go to the group, but you can bring someone's there to like, do like how church would be where you can drop the kids off and then go in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like who, 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 where, where do we spend time these days? Like, especially digitally, like where do we spend time? I think, you know, it's more and more it's on zoom and it's more and more, you know, in Slack channels and it's, it's maybe in games. I think more and more often, like we, uh, we do a game day once a week inside of the company. That's oh, really nice. helpful just from like a social standpoint where we, we play video games and connect on zoom. And it's, it's a really effective way to just talk about things that aren't the company. And we have, we have a couple of other parents in the company as well. So it's, it's, it's helpful for me, I think from a, from a sort of life management standpoint. I like your concept of max pain because I, I use that phrase, max pain. People ask me how difficult things are. And I was like, all right, so you're going to have max pain duration for, <laughs> it's like, you yeah. just, you're going to, you're going to scale up to max pain and then you're going to be there for this amount of time. And then you're going to come back, you're going to recharge, and then you're going to go right back there. And you're in Elon Musk says staring into the abyss and eating glass. I think that's a fantastic, it sets the expectation 
And then when you actually do it, it just means something on a whole other level. You're like, oh, wow. I think it also like helps us empathize with our companies, right? The companies that we're working with. We're in the incident response business. We're in the world of, of people going through pain. And I think one of the most, most effective things you can have when you're dealing with a major incident is to have someone else in the room who's gone through a lot of pain. We've, we've talked a lot about the pandemic as it relates to major incidents. And you know the, the, the one thing that it's done for us is now we've all gone through a major incident together. Like all of, all of, all of humanity has gone through like a major incident and it has, has this positive effect on the outside, right? Beyond once, once you're past it, which is now we all have this shared experience and we all have something that we can, we can empathize with each other over. And the next time something goes, goes badly, whether it's within a smaller group or, or, you know, on the same scale, I think we can all approach it a little bit, you know, with less emotion and more compassion for each other. And I think that's that's one of the things that incident management really tries to push, right? It's this idea that incidents aren't strange. It's not unusual. We're going to go through these as a company and they're going to happen all the time. And, and we learn as we file more of these things, as we have more of these things, you know, how to approach them from a standpoint that isn't aggressive and, and, and mean-hearted, right? How do we approach these things kindly? And, uh, and I think that that's really the advantage of practicing it. And I, I, I think, you know, it's the one maybe silver lining to, to what's happening with the pandemic is, is we're all hopefully gathering a little bit more compassion for each other and understanding, you know, how hard things can be when, when things go really wrong. And I think that there's a nice translation there culturally into uh, incident response for companies as there has been for, you know, this, this, this uh, pandemic. So, all right, call to action. People want to try Cantaba. They want to experience it for themselves. How do they do that? Yeah, so so the product is free uh, to sign up, easy to sign up, takes a few minutes. Uh, it's kintaba.com, K-I-N-T-A-B-A.com. Uh, there's a link right there to sign up. If you if you want a deeper dive into it, there's another link there for a demo um, where we'll hop on the call with you and get, get super deep into how it might integrate more directly with your specific stack uh, and your team. But yeah, the, the idea there is it's it's minutes to get up and running and you should be able to file an incident within five. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.